If you got a Bible, uh, go ahead and open it to Acts chapter 4. We're continuing our series in the book of Acts. We've been at it since September. We're not doing a Christmas series this year. We will, you know, on Christmas Eve, do something Christmassy. Um, but part of the reason we're continuing with the series is that I feel like we're we're just getting going in the book of Acts. We're only in chapter 4, and we started in September, and so I want to I want to keep going with it. I think there's a lot of uh, good insights for us to, to glean as we uh, as we look at this. We're going to be looking at verses 23 to 31 of chapter 4, but before I read those verses, I want to begin by reading a quote that will hopefully get us pointed in the right direction. It's a quote I know I've read for you before. Uh, it's a quote from A.W. Tozer, who was one of the most influential voices in the, in the alliance movement in the past century, uh, but here's what he had to say said, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. The history of mankind will probably show that no people has ever risen above its religion. And man's spiritual history will positively demonstrate that no religion has ever been greater than its idea of God. For this reason, the gravest question before the church is always God himself, and the most portentous fact about any man is not what he at a given time may say or do, but what he in his deep heart conceives God to be like. Always the most revealing thing about the church is her idea of God, just as her most significant message is what she says about him or leaves unsaid, for her silence is often more eloquent than her speech. And what Tozer was saying was that the most important thing about us is not our self-image, but our God-image. What do we think God is like? And I want you to hang on to that as we turn our attention to the passage before us. As I said, we're looking at Acts 4, verses 23 to 31. And I'm going to invite you to stand for the reading of God's Word this morning. Let me read it to you. This is God's Word, and it says this. When they were released, that's Peter and John released from prison, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly, in this city, we're gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. While you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. You can go ahead and be seated. I want to say this is an important passage that's before us. Now, this is actually the fifth week that we have spent sort of unpacking the healing of the lame man. 
from Acts chapter 3. In Acts 3, uh, Peter and John, they heal this man who had been lame from birth. Then Peter gets up and he preaches a sermon explaining the miracle or explaining the sign. Peter and John are then arrested. They spend a night in prison. Then they are interrogated by the authorities. And now we come to a passage that tells us what happened after they were released from prison. And what happened is that they gathered together with the church and prayed. Now, at the outset, I'll just say, I could have made this a message about prayer. There are lots of observations that we could make about prayer from these verses. So we could, and we should take note of the priority of prayer, that the very first thing they did upon release was to gather together with other believers and to pray together. Uh, We could and should take note of the fact that they were unified in their prayer together. It says here that they lifted their voices together to God in prayer. That's a good thing to do. We could also stop to notice the boldness of their prayer, that uh, just as they were bold in their witness, as we saw last week, now they are equally bold in their prayer to God. All of those things are true. They're all helpful for us to know about prayer. But I actually think there's something even bigger for us to pay attention to in these verses. And that is the fact that their prayer is actually the outworking of their theology. This is how prayer works. And that's why I began with that quote from Tozer. What you and I believe about God will determine how we come before him in prayer. Now, Jesus taught us this. You might remember him saying, Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, we'll give him a serpent. If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? Right? If we think of God as someone who would give a stone when his son asks for bread, if we think of God like that, he's miserly, he's cold, he's distant, he doesn't care about us, That will affect the way we pray about him. Our ideas about God are revealed in our prayers. And I would say nowhere is that more clear than when we're facing a crisis. And remember the context of Acts chapter 4. They are facing a crisis. Peter and John have been released from prison, but along with their release came a threat from the authorities. Right? If you back up to verse 21... They had just said, for we cannot help but speak of what we've seen and heard. And then it says, and when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people. And I would just say it's in those kinds of crisis moments that what we really think about God gets revealed. I think I've told you this story before, but it's a, it's a good one. Uh, Donald Gray Barnhouse pastored 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia from 1927 until 1960. He was a graduate of Princeton Theological Seminary, and he was asked to come speak at one of their chapels about 12 years after he had graduated. And so he came on that, on that day, and he spoke at the chapel, and he noticed sitting near the front was one of his former professors, a professor of Old Testament, Dr. Wilson. And afterwards, Dr. Wilson came up to him and and explained that he made a point of attending chapels 
whenever one of his former students was preaching. And he said he came for one reason. He said, I come to see if they are big godders or little godders. Now, not sure if he understood his teacher's words. Barnhouse asked him to explain, and his explanation went like this. Some men have a little God, and they're always in trouble with him. He can't do any miracles. He doesn't intervene on behalf of his people. They have a little God, and I call them little godders. Then there are those who have a great God. He speaks, and it is done. He commands, and it stands fast. He knows how to show himself strong on behalf of those who fear him. Those are the big godders. And Dr. Wilson said that he knew all he needed to know about the ministry of his former students based on whether their preaching revealed them to be big godders or little godders. Now, my hope today for this message is that it will encourage you to be a big godder, to have a big view of who God is. And so what I want to do as we go through this passage is just highlight four truths about God that we learn here. The first one is that God is creator. Notice how their prayer begins in verse 24. It says, And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. Now, we're going to come back to the sovereign Lord part in a couple of minutes, but they begin their prayer with a word about God as creator, sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. Now, in some ways, we could say, well, you know, they're praying scripture. They're just echoing the very first verse of the Bible, which says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. But I I think there's actually more to it than that. That expression, heaven and earth, or the heavens and earth, is a merism. Now, a merism is a figure of speech. The technical definition, it's a figure of speech by which something is referred to by a phrase that highlights its constituent parts. Super clear, I know. So let me give you some examples of that. If I say to you, you know, I've searched high and low for something. What do I mean? I mean, I've searched everywhere for it, right? I've searched high, I've searched low. If I say, let me tell you the long and the short of it, what I'm doing is saying, you know, this is the long version of the story, this is the short version of the story, all the details are included. If I say this applies to young and old, what do I mean? I mean it applies to everyone, to the young, to the old, and to everyone in between. When the Bible says that God created the heavens and the earth, What it means is that he created absolutely everything, the heavens, the earth, everything in between. There is nothing that exists that was not created by God. Now, why is that important? Why is it important that they began their prayer by appealing to the creator, to the God who made the heavens and the earth? I think the answer to that has to do with authority and power. So let me just try to explain uh, what I mean by that. A a few weeks back, um, I was out shopping, and I I, I bought a new shirt. And when I got home, I put it on to show Ilona. Like, I bought this shirt. What do you think? She was like, well, 
it's not my favorite, <laughs> right? So I was like, okay, if she doesn't like it, you know, my girls didn't, or Rachel really didn't like it either, so I was like, I'm taking it back. I go to the store, go to the mall, find the store, I go in, got my little bag and my shirt in it, and I went up to the front counter, and I was like, oh, you know what, I've got a shirt I'd like to return. She's like, oh, well, well, that's great, except we don't take returns today, it's Black Friday, one of the busiest days of the year. I'm like, okay, there's one other customer in the store. Like, you, you can return the shirt, right? No, I, I can't do that. That's our policy. It's Black Friday, one of the busiest days of the year. We, we can't return the shirt. And then even as I said the words, as they're coming out of my mouth, it's like, why? Why? Don't say that. Leave it. I was like, can I see your manager? <laughs> right? I mean, I don't want to be that guy, right? I don't want to end up on someone's viral video of, like, angry customers in the mall. Local pastor berates a store clerk or something. But, but why was that my instinctive appeal? Well, it's because I know the manager actually has more authority than the clerk does, right? Turns out this one didn't. She, she couldn't return it either, but, <laughs> but that's the way it works. Now, if it, if it was the store owner, you'd say that that person has even more authority. God is not just the owner. He is the creator. He made the heavens and the earth and everything in between. It all belongs to him. So these early Christians, they hear the threats that these civil and religious leaders made against them. And who do they appeal to? They appeal to the sovereign Lord, the one who made the heaven and the earth, the one who has all authority to govern what he has created. God is creator. Second piece of theology we see here is that God is revealer. Listen now to verses 25 and 26. So verse 24, it says, Sovereign Lord who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in it. And then verse 25, Who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. And what Peter and John and the other Christians gathered with them were acknowledging here in their prayer is that God has revealed himself and his plan in his word. The Holy Spirit inspired David to write down what he wrote down. Now, when we talk about the revelation of God or or God as revealer, we can classify that really under two headings. The the first one is what we would call natural revelation. This refers to the way that God has revealed himself through creation, through what he has made. We can look at Psalm 19 and get a sense of what is meant by that. Psalm 19 begins like this. The heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech. Night to night reveals knowledge. There's no speech, there are no words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. Now, the Apostle Paul picks up on that. He quotes that in Romans chapter 1. But those verses describe for us the universal nature of God's natural revelation. Everyone, everywhere, at all times can know something about God 
by virtue of living in the world that he created. As you look at the world, it reveals something about God's power, his vastness, his beauty, his order. That's natural revelation. And that's helpful, but it can only take us so far. So there's another more specific way that God has chosen to reveal himself, and that is through his word. If you were to continue reading in Psalm 19, you can actually divide that psalm in in two halves. You can go home and do this. The first half speaks about God's natural revelation. The second half speaks about God's special revelation. That psalm continues like this. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. See, God is a speaking God. He has spoken through his law, through his precepts, through his testimony, through his commandments. That, in fact, is the primary way that God has revealed himself. That is God's special revelation. But notice that God doesn't just reveal himself in his word. He also reveals his plan. Now, God's revelation is progressive. That is to say that we know more today than the saints in the Old Testament did because God's revelation is progressive. He revealed it over time. But God did reveal his plan all through the Bible. And here, as these Christians pray, they quote from Psalm 2. Psalm that was written by David a thousand years before the birth of Jesus. And while that psalm has some partial fulfillment, while David was king, the ultimate fulfillment of Psalm 2 is found in the world's opposition to Jesus, where it says, The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. His anointed Messiah is Jesus. This was God's plan. And he revealed it not just in Psalm 2, but all through the Old Testament. But again, we might ask, well, how is that helpful? I mean, what's the benefit of knowing that God reveals his plan through his word? And I think it's helpful because it allows us to see events through the proper lens. If you were without the written revelation of God and you viewed the events of Jesus' arrest and crucifixion, you might conclude, well, he couldn't have been the Messiah because surely everyone would have followed the Messiah and there's no way he would have been put to death. There's no way God would abandon him like that. But God's word had revealed all along that would not be the case, that the rulers of the earth would take their stand against the Lord and against his anointed. And these early Christians, they understood that. And the situation is actually similar for us. Without God's written revelation, we might think that following Jesus, preaching about Jesus, is going to be met with universal approval. Everyone's going to get on board. We might think that aligning ourselves with Jesus would make everything in our lives just get smoother, right? We'll we'll, we'll all be wealthier. We'll all be healthier. We'll all be living our best life now. But Jesus told us plainly, and he told us repeatedly, that would not be the case. Jesus said this, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I've overcome the world. 
So Jesus is very clear. Look, the way for you to have peace is through me, through him. But just because you have peace in Jesus doesn't mean your life is free from all trouble. In this world, you will have tribulation. But rather than us then getting discouraged and giving up in the midst of that, he says, but take heart, I have overcome the world. In other words, we already know the end of the story. And so we're not fearful about this chapter of the story we find ourselves in. So God is creator. God is revealer. Third truth we discover here is that God is ruler. And you can actually see that in two ways in this prayer. The first is in their address to God. They begin their prayer with the words, Sovereign Lord. Now that's actually a translation of just one word in Greek. And that Greek word is despota. Now, you know an English word that sounds an awful lot like that because it comes from this word. It's the word despot. When we hear that word, it immediately brings up negative connotations in our mind. We think a despot is someone like Joseph Stalin or Adolf Hitler. The word, as it is used here in Acts chapter 4, means a ruler of unchallengeable power. That is who we come to when we come to God in prayer. We come to one who rules the universe with unchallengeable power. And you can understand why this would have been such a great comfort to these Christians, right? I mean, at this point, their numbers are small. They don't hold any positions of power. They've caught the attention. They've drawn the ire of the religious establishment. They're now living under a threat. So what do they do? Do they run for the hills and hide? Do they fold like a $20 suit? No. They do what God's people have always done. They appeal to the one who rules over all, the sovereign Lord, the ruler of unchallengeable power. Now, we can see God's rule expressed in another way in these verses. Verses 27 and 28 say this. For truly, in this city, there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your plan had predestined to take place. Now, those are fascinating verses for lots of reasons. But think firstly about the players who were involved in the execution of Jesus. Herod is mentioned first. Now, Herod was the king of the Jews at this time. He was sort of a puppet king that had been installed by the Romans, but he was a king, no less. Lots of power, lots of authority. Next is Pontius Pilate. Pontius Pilate was the Roman governor over all of Judea. Again, lots of power, lots of authority. So you have a Roman official, you have a Jewish official. Next is mentioned the Gentiles, so all those who were not of Jewish descent, they were gathered against Jesus, and the peoples of Israel. So everyone, from the ruling class to the ruled class, from the Jews to the Gentiles, everyone is indicted in the death of Jesus. They're all active participants in it. 
But then there is a surprise. Because verse 28 goes on to say that all of these people acted to do whatever your plan, whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Wait, what? Who was responsible for the death of Jesus on the cross? Was it Herod and Pontius Pilate and the people of Israel and the Gentiles? Or was it God? And the answer is yes. All of the above. And this is where you see the interplay between God's sovereignty and human responsibility. Because at the human level, all of these individuals acted of their own accord, right? They wanted Jesus put to death for their own motivation. But at the divine level, it was God's plan from before the foundation of the world that the Lamb of God would be slain for the sins of his people. Theologians refer to this as the doctrine of concurrence. In essence, concurrence says that two or more parties can act in the same event and produce a given outcome without having the same intent. There's lots of examples of this in the Bible. We could think of the example of Joseph. You know the story of Joseph, motivated by greed and jealousy. His brothers sell him into slavery. That was their evil intent. But their actions weren't some kind of surprise to God. God wasn't sitting in in heaven saying, oh, I I can't believe they did that. What am I going to do now? They acted of their own accord, but it was part of God's plan. Here's what Joseph would later say to his brothers. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. See, his brothers sold him into slavery with evil intent. God sent him to Egypt with a different intent. That's concurrence. Job's life is a good example of concurrence. Job chapter 1. If you go read Job chapter 1, Job is the one who experienced all of this suffering. You'll find there are three major players in Job's suffering in chapter 1. Satan instigated the suffering by issuing a challenge to the Lord regarding Job's piety. God allowed Satan to bring suffering into Job's life. And then the Chaldeans and the Sabaeans attacked Job's family, stole his livestock. Three parties. The intent of each party was different. Satan's intention was to discredit Job and thereby discredit God. The Sabaeans and the Chaldeans, their intent was to enrich themselves with Job's possessions. God's intent was to vindicate Job's faith. That's concurrence. That God, as ruler, brings everything to his desired end. He can even use human rebellion and wickedness to accomplish his purposes. Here's how one writer put it. The Bible affirms two truths side by side. God plans and humans freely responsibly choose. The Lord's control is so perfect that he can accomplish his purposes while granting us the freedom to follow our desires and purposes. Now, again, you you might be sitting there thinking, well, okay, Lee, that's all wonderful theology and, and all of that. 
But what practical difference does this make in my life? Is this just theologians debating how many angels can dance on the head of the pin? Is that what all this talk about sovereignty is about? Well, think again about what the early Christians were facing as they offered this prayer to God. Threats were being made against the church. Don't teach this anymore or you'll experience something a lot worse than being thrown in prison for a night. And so they turn to God in prayer. And what they pray is, Lord, we are now experiencing opposition, but we know that your beloved son experience that same kind of opposition, and that was part of your plan. I mean, is that not a truth that ought to comfort us when we face our own crises? I mean this individually and as a church. If everything that happened to Jesus, including the evil that was done against him, happened according to God's purpose and plan, what are the implications of that for our lives? Should we take the crises that we experience, the hardship that we experience, and should we conclude, well, this is a sure sign God has abandoned us? He's forgotten about us. He doesn't care about us. The answer is no. Can you see what I mean by saying that their prayer is actually the outworking of their theology? Right? They understand God is ruler. He rules over all. So they understand nothing they're experiencing is outside of the purposes of God. They don't have to know why a particular thing happened. All they have to know is that nothing happens apart from God's sovereignty. So God is creator. God is revealer, God is ruler, and the final thing we discover here is that God is responder. I'm not sure if that captures all that I'm saying or trying to say here, but it starts with R and it kind of works. God responds to the prayers of his people. Now, there might be seasons where we wonder if that is in fact true. There's a scene in Exodus chapter 2 where the people of Israel felt just like that. They were living in slavery in Egypt They were consigned to hard labor under a tyrannical pharaoh. Here's what it says in Exodus chapter 2. During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. And then it says, and God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. God heard, God remembered, God saw, God knew. And the events in Exodus chapter 2 led to the deliverance, the salvation of God's people through Moses. God is responder. So back to our passage, and I want you to notice that the very first ask in their prayer doesn't come until verse 29, right? Prayer starts in verse 24. They don't actually ask for anything until verse 29. Verse 29 says, and now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. Such an interesting 
prayer. Look upon their threats or consider their threats. That's not necessarily take away the opposition that we're experiencing or change our circumstances. But, but look upon them. So, so what is their real ask? Well, their real ask is grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. Their prayer is essentially, God, would you help us to be faithful in the midst of the pressure we are experiencing? Right? Not take away the pressure. Help us to be faithful in the pressure. Now, we talked about boldness last week, and I I came across a great quote about boldness. It says this, Boldness is confidence in God that leads to courage in a crisis. Boldness is confidence in God that leads to courage in a crisis. See, this is why I spent all that time talking about the nature of God. Because if we are going to have confidence in God that's going to lead to courage in a crisis, we need to know what God is like. We need to know what kind of God it is that we have to do with. So you need to know God. You need to know that God is creator, that he's the one who made the heavens and the earth and everything in between. You need to know that God has revealed himself and his plan through his word so that you might understand what is happening in the world. You need to know God as ruler, that his sovereignty covers absolutely everything that happens in this world and that even even all of the seemingless, meaningless stuff, seemingless, did I say? Seemingly purposeless stuff, falls under his rule. And you need to know that God responds to the prayers of his people. That he's not a distant, disinterested deity, unaware of what's happening in the lives of his people. He responds. Now, I said at the start that we decided not to do a Christmas series this year, but Christmas is really the ultimate expression of God's response or his rescue of his people. Matthew describes the birth of Jesus like this. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. God with us. Jesus, born into this world, is God's response to a broken world. We're going to explore that more on Christmas Eve. Now, just to continue with the passage, verse 30 is a continuation of their prayer. What they say there is, while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. What they're really asking is that God would confirm the truth of their preaching through healing, through signs and wonders, like the one that was done with this man who was lame from birth. And actually, if you read the rest of the book of Acts, you'll see that God answers this prayer, right? He does this very thing. But now I want you to notice, just as we close, what happens after they pray in verse 31. What it says there is, and when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. 
Well, I, I entitled this message, Stirred, Not Shaken, and I kind of stole that and then reversed it from the way James Bond orders his martinis, right? Shaken, not stirred. What, what I'm really trying to highlight with that is that while the place where they were gathered was shaken, they were not shaken. They were actually stirred up for mission. They didn't say, well, I guess we better retreat to a safer activity. It says they continued to speak the word of God with all boldness, right? They were empowered by the Spirit to do what they had been called to do. You know, a few weeks back, I shared with you uh, my working definition of the church according to what we've seen in the book of Acts. I'm going to just repeat that for you now because I think it's a good note for us to end on this morning. The church is the people of God, redeemed by the Son of God, shaped by the Word of God, empowered by the Spirit of God, and committed to the mission of God. That's who we're called to be. We're called to be those who continue to speak the Word of God with all boldness. So let's just pray to that end. Lord, we thank you that you have called us into a relationship with yourself. You do that uh, in many ways, but you do that when we hear your word and it penetrates our hearts. And God, I pray you would continue to do that. We thank you that you are a great God. You are not a small God. You are creator. You are ruler. You are sovereign over everything. And we pray that as we get our confidence in you, it leads us to courage in the way that we live in this world. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.